me begin, first of all, by thanking Drs. Quinn, Meek, and Smith for their contributions thus far this evening at the Wisdom Forum as we discuss the good life. And we want to ask a few follow-up questions before we take a break uh, for dessert and coffee. And I want to begin with Dr. Quinn. So you uh, talked about wisdom in relation to the uh, path metaphor in the Bible and uh, sort of the bi-directionality of the heart, that we're either worshiping God or uh, gods, counterfeit gods, and we're either walking on the path of wisdom or folly. I'm wondering if you could follow up on uh, what the psalmist says when he refers to God's word as a lamp into our feet and a light into our path. So could you reflect on that, God's word, uh, you know, Christ incarnate, and also in the, of the scriptures? Sure. So Psalm 119 um, is replete with way language. The, you know, every verse in the psalm, um, every verse in that psalm, the longest psalm in the Psalter, it has another word or some repeated word to refer to the statutes of God, the laws of God, the word of God, and, and all these things correct my path. Even I was reading just this morning with a, with a class um, where around verse 66, somewhere in there, it says, even, even the afflictions were good for me, set my feet back on your right path. So over and over, Psalm 119 especially, it's just so rich with this. In fact, uh, Dr. Mullins will talk to us a little bit about that later this evening. The way then that I would understand Scripture's relationship to how we understand this way, this, this proper direction of, of the good life, the uh, walking in God's way, is that at the end of the day, Scripture norms that way. The Scripture is the, very, is the very means by which we go back to reimagine, to, to, to pick up on Jamie's points. To, the way that we reimagine the good life is not by looking somewhere else, but by looking back into, deeper into the biblical narrative to see how, how does God understand this? How ought we understand our own embodied realities? How do we understand then life and uh, how do we understand relationships and longing for anything whatsoever, whether we're uh, involved with uh, family life, we're involved with sports life, we're involved with culinary life, we're involved with spending money, we're involved in all of these things that our hearts become attached to. The scriptures come back along and reform all of that. They help us to reimagine that and ultimately norm that way. Yeah, that's good. You know, we're on a seminary campus and I talk to seminary students all the time about how easy it is for us, even in a confessional seminary where we confess that the scriptures are the inspired word of God, how easy it is for us to lapse into viewing the Bible as sort of an object to be mastered and we sort of uh, lose the majesty of it all. And I think if we switch the metaphor from a sight to hearing, that helps, right? That uh, when we see a book, we can master it and exegete it the way we would a math textbook. Um, but uh, when we switch the metaphor to hearing, we're listening to the word of the Lord. We're hearing the word of the Lord, the living words of a living Lord. I'm just curious as a follow-up question, uh, what advice do you give your students on their habits of scripture reading, reflection, and I'm going to open this up to everybody. Ben, we'll start with you and anyone else who has uh, something to say. Yeah, I, I, like the, I like the practice of listening. Le Lectio Divina, kind of not only listening, listening long, but imagining myself there, imagining myself, placing myself into the scriptures. Not always, it, it is easy, Bruce, as you're talking about, we're in an institutional context. And so very quickly, something like the Bible becomes merely textbook to us. Um, but to continue to feast deeply on the word and to actually let that become part and parcel of who we are as, as hopefully fully human beings, um, that we do listen long. As I was mentioning in the talk, that we have to listen long sometimes even to discern this, the distinction between lady wisdom and lady folly. And sometimes that, mean that, we, that means that we allow the scriptures to pour into us, we ingest them and then stop and pause and rest and listen and have these good rhythms, hence the, what we're doing tonight, have these good rhythms even of listening well so that we can then live well. So if anybody wants to follow up, you can. And if not, I've got plenty of questions in the queue. Just briefly, okay. um, 
in defense of seeing. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, somebody once said that there's three Advents. The first Advent and the second Advent, but the third Advent is every time you open your Bible. There, it should be epiphanic, intimate communion and encounter and, and transformative and transfiguring. So um, I think if we change our seeing yeah. so that it's, you said taste and see, you know, mm-hmm. so your seeing yeah. is tasting, then mm-hmm. it becomes epiphanic. That's good. I, yep. I would like to make one plug too for a practice of scripture which is called the lectionary, so, which might not be familiar to us, but the lectionary is basically sort of a curriculum shared by congregations around the world so that they are taken through the entirety of the Bible every three years publicly in their public worship. And I think that's a really good discipline and habit because otherwise what happens is we gravitate to the parts of the Bible that are familiar or comfortable or that we feel like we've mastered. And to be f- the lectionary is a discipline practice that forces you to have to hear the parts of the word that you might not want to, which I think is an important So let's talk about liturgy while we're talking about liturgy. What do you mean when you say liturgy? Yeah, thanks. Uh, so I- I'm, imagine it with a small L, <laughs> and um, I- I'm using the term actually quite broadly. For me, a liturgy is a love-shaping practice. A liturgy is a love-shaping practice. What, what I mean by that is it's a, it's a sort of communal uh, uh, routine or ritual that you do but is also doing something to you, right? So it's forming your affections. It's actually it's a love-shaping practice because it's, it's the kind of social or communal ritual that's actually calibrating your heart to want a certain vision of the good life. Okay, so let's follow up on that again, then I'm going to come back to Dr. Meek. So while we're talking liturgies, uh, you talked about, compi- you, you, you define the good life for us. Let's uh, go in again and talk about competing visions of the good life. You can cover some of desiring the kingdom material if, if you want. What are two or three competing visions of the good life? What are their liturgies look like? So um, I think one, one competing gospel, competing version of the good life is the gospel of consumerism which I would say is uh, the false promise that stuff will make you happy, right? So the acquisition, and, and not even just acquisition, but also the acquisition of new stuff will make you happy. So glitz, so, the, so consumption now is basically a, a mean, we even talk about retail therapy, right? Because as if this is gonna work for you. And, and what, I think is, what I think is important to see though is that the gospel of consumerism doesn't get hold of you because when you, um, you know, you walk up to the mall, somebody meets you at the door and says, here's our statement of fundamental truths. Do you know, like this isn't what the mall believes. It's because precisely because you're invited into a liturgy, the rhythms and rituals of the consumer gospel is this litany of practices and stories and it's caught more than it's taught. So I, I think that's one. Um, another is I, I do think that as Christians, especially in the United States, we have to grapple with the ways that nationalism is its own rival gospel. I mean that in a very particular technical way. And uh, in, you, know, you know you have fallen prey to nationalism when your, your national citizenship and interests trump Christian goods, okay? Now, so how do, how do people become nationalists? Again, I think it's through liturgies, not through messages. It's not because somebody argues you into it. And I, I would say one of the sites for the liturgies of nationalism is oddly and uniquely our stadiums. 
So our stadiums are all, I mean, have you ever, well, I don't know. I always need to be more careful about that. I'm Canadian if that helps. However, my citizenship application is in process. And, and um, which is probably why I should be more careful about what I'm going to say right now. But um, uh, just, so it, just realizing that the, the, the powerful litany of national power and mythology and might that re is rehearsed very sensibly, visually, tactilely, and viscerally at the beginning of every sporting event is not just something that you do, it's doing something to you. That would be That's good, that's great. Dr. Meek, so let's imagine that we've got a young man or a young woman, American or Canadian, um, who really, you know, upon coming here this evening says, you know, I think I'm caught between visions. And I'm genuinely a Christian, but I'm caught between visions. You mentioned in your talk the concept of consent, giving consent uh, in, on the way to having a divine encounter with God. What does that look like wow. to give consent, maybe even when you're tangled in a, a web of com competing visions and you're returning to God? Mm, well, I, it's like one of my new favorite words. And um, have you ever heard the word acedia? We have, we have now. Okay. <laughs> well, acedia and consent are opposites, okay? So acedia is one of the seven deadly sins, and uh, it's uh, typically understood to be sloth or laziness. Um, Catholic philosopher Joseph Pieper defines it as refusal to consent to being. So it, it's uh, like a, a, a saying no <laughs> to God's yes. That's not smart, right? So um, consent, you see, is saying yes. Uh, just think of young men sweating bullets as they plan how to ask their intended for their hand in marriage. They should sweat <laughs> because it's a big deal when she gives her consent, okay? So really uh, uh, involved in liturgy of any sort, uh, would be probably tacit consent. And, and I, I want to back it up to like the, the, you know, back it down to the most fundamental levels of being. Um, you are God's yes, you know, and, and so uh, to live a life of consent to being uh, is, is absolutely essential to your, to your humanness. And uh, yes, you've got to give your consent to, to Christ. My students have to somehow give consent to uh, do what I say in the class or they'll never get anything from the class. So consent is this, this uh, lovely, uh, sophisticated human uh, behavior that I think is really at the heart of, of who we are. We've got to say yes to who we are even. There's, there's people that live a no to themselves. It's called despair, right, or cynicism. That's, that's rejection, that's a no. But just starting to say yes to anything, uh, even if you don't know, no, you're nowhere near God, but just to start to say yes is to turn toward hope. Thank you, so we've got a few minutes left and I wanna ask uh, one question, ask each of you if you would to answer it. Just to recommended resources on the good life or on living wisely. And uh, the resource could be a contemporary book or a website. It could be a historical person. It could be a passage of scripture. And uh, why don't we start with Dr. Quinn and then Dr. Meek, Dr. Smith. 
Just one, multiples, a oh, few. one or two. Would you, would you okay. got like everything 60, that, 60 uh, seconds a piece. Everything so. that Use Ashford, Smith, and Meek say, right? Um, <laughs> my, my favorite dead person is St. Augustine, without question, uh, because Jesus is still alive. So St. Augustine is my favorite dead person. Um, <laughs> And you know, even, even in reflecting on the good life, this is just a theme that I come back to so often in my own life and with my kids and with my students and so on, is that what has to be healed in us as much as anything is our wanter. It's this broken lust, these disordered, misordered loves, this wanter that's inside of us that is all over the place and needs to be properly healed and reordered. Um, I don't know anything better to do that uh, in addition to Scripture than the confessions. To, to walk through the confessions of St. Augustine and hear him even praying back to God and hear him uh, sort of reinterpret his life before Christ in light of Christ and then see where it takes him from there. So I would recommend the confessions. Contemporary book. I'm not letting you off the hook. Ben? About, about, about the good life, you said, right? Yeah, or wisdom. Just or something, wisdom. Something we need to read. Uh, yeah, I, can you come back to me on that? <laughs> yeah, sure I will. <laughs> because, I, <laughs> okay. because I might say this, uh, I might say you are what you love, but I'll think about it in just a second. You could so recommend me, your dissertation. Say again? You could recommend your dissertation. Oh, you don't want to yeah. read that. It, that, that, <laughs> might, that might induce yeah. comatose state, so you don't want to do that. Dr. Meek? Well, that's good for the good life. <laughs> um, well, mine is not a book. And I think on this stage before the evening is over, you'll see something that's not words that I would recommend, and that's beauty, and, and making beauty. So I might say something for jazz ensemble or uh, painting, some, something like that. Okay, great, thank you. Um, I do wanna make one more plug for Lars and the Real Girl, which is a really marvelous film. And uh, then maybe um, two resources. One is, because um, you stole Augustine, so. Um, I think the work of Wendell Berry is actually very provocative uh, to, to read in light of these conversations because I think in many ways what he's doing is diagnosing how disordered the version of the good life is in late modern capitalism. Um, on the other hand, I think he paints a vision of, and in the novel, so actually a great entree is there's an anthology of Wendell Berry's writings called Bringing It to the Table, I think that's it. Uh, which is a very nice way if you've never read Barry. The other thing is, there's actually a great little book that people don't talk about enough by David Matsko McCarthy called The Good Life. And it's, I think it would hit most of us where we are in the kind of contemporary cultural moment in which we find ourselves, in which he just points out the ways that we've sort of been captivated by some of these rival versions, and then the kind of practical, simple ways that it looks like for communities of friends, congregations to live out the alternative. 